This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, welcome back to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that is playing right now on Liz Truss's phone, even though it is locked in a lead box inside GCHQ. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition... Prime Minister Rishi Sunak starts off with a classic ministerial scandal over Suella Braverman's libertarian attitude to her data. But as the stratospheric labour leads of the trust months or weeks or whatever it was start to decline, does Starmer need more in his armoury than just Tory incompetence? Plus, trick or tweet, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is going just great, with the world's greatest tech bro starting as he means to go on, spreading conspiracy theory about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. Is Twitter heading for a free speech death spiral? And we're recording on Halloween. Why is Trick or Treat, aka demanding chopper chops with menaces night, on the up, while poor old Bonfire Night is on the way down? Here to talk it over with me are some of our regulars. Hello to independent columnist Hannah Fern. Hiya, Hannah. Hello. So as a fellow five foot three person, I applaud your attacks on the Rishi Sunak is so yes. short gags. It is a disgrace. You know, they've been doing the rounds. Why are we still equating height with political reliability? This drives me mad. I don't want to come over completely po-faced, but I'm five foot, possibly a little bit below that. I'm claiming five foot. Mm-hmm. It has. It won't leave me alone. I'm forty now. People are still making jokes about it all the time. I'm absolutely sick of it, and I I felt really depressed seeing it going around on social media as the number one thing to criticise about. You know, a man who has endless sources yeah. of potential attack. Why do we even care? It's so tedious. Well, soon next five foot five. So was Stalin. You know, I mean, he got th- he got things done. You might not like them, but he got things done. Chris Grayling, on the other hand, six foot five. So, fun fact: I once, uh, back in my diary days, went to a dinner at Chris Grayling was at, and I was meant to talk to him at some point. But I got so drunk, I got really freaked out by how tall he was, <laughs> and just could not approach him because I am quite short as well. That is freelance journalist and author Marie Leconte, who is also on our panel today. So we had a bit of good news for a change this week uh, with uh, the news from Brazil that the 77-year-old left-wing former metal worker Lula beat Jair Bolsonaro. He got 50.9% of the votes in the runoff at the weekend. Can we all sigh with relief now? We absolutely can. And it looks, I think, you know, what, what we were really worried about was, A, I think on the day it did look like actually Bolsonaro supporters in the police in you know in in positions of authority were effectively trying to suppress votes uh, especially in Lula voting areas clearly that did not stop Lula from winning and the second thing was that you know people did not really believe that Bolsonaro would concede and he would actually probably try to do some form of coup and he did not and yeah no so I think it, it is just genuine good news. Lula told Brazil the country needs peace and unity the population doesn't want to fight anymore what's on his plate then because he said there were the massive repairs to make from the Bolsonaro years. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, for a start, I think the Amazon rainforest kind of saving it and trying to start even just undoing some of the damage that was done uh, during the Bolsonaro years will be a massive priority, uh, which obviously he mentioned in his speech. Um, and even, you know, I, I think apart from that, it's just all the quite boilerplate stuff of, you know, poverty is a massive problem in Brazil. And again, you know, it, it is now um, an incredibly divided country and he will have to convince quite a lot of people that actually, you know, Bolsonaro should not, for example, be making a comeback like Trump. 
Completing the panel is Bunker Regular, uh, making a transfer across to Oh God What Now, actor and comedian Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. Hello. We're going to be talking about Labour and the Tories in a bit of detail later, but one very early clangor in Sunak's administration is his refusal to go to COP27. Uh, what should we conclude from this? I'm not sure that he actually won't go uh, in the end. It feels like uh, very early into Sunak's premiership, we're still engaged in the same sort of, no, I'm definitely doing this or definitely not doing this, psych uh, thing that we got uh, during uh, the Truss uh, government. Um, he stated that there are a lot of domestic pressures that he needs to be focused on, which is obviously the case, but then lots of people have domestic pressures which they need to focus on and are also going to cop. And it does feel strange given at least all of his rhetoric about the idea that all his daughters want to talk to him about is uh, the climate and the environment and net zero. But um, who knows? So perhaps he will, perhaps he won't. Perhaps he is now of the opinion that uh, COP is more of a bureaucratic talking shop, more about self-congratulation than action, which increasingly seems to be the opinion of Greta Thunberg. So perhaps uh, Rishi and Greta have become uh, great pals. Outwoking uh, Greta Thunberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rishi is going to be at the VNA chucking spag bollocks shit (laughs) instead of going to COP. He also told the king not to go and Charles is instead sort of subtweeting him by holding a special cocktail reception. Not a very good idea to start your relationship with the monarch with a row. This sort of baffled me because I thought that it would be a really clear win for, you know, as a as a head of state, uh, King Charles has been talking about uh, climate change and sustainability since before, in fact, before many other heads of state w- yeah. were born, uh, even potentially before Rishi Sunak was born uh, and everything. And also, like, personally, given that he is the first British Indian prime minister that this country had, I can only speak for myself, but personally, the idea of saying, yeah, I so I, I didn't go, but I made the grandson of the last emperor of India go instead. Mm. Uh, that that would have that would have attracted me uh, as a, <laughs> as a thing to be able to make the king do. Before we get started for, for real, um, a small reminder: it's the live debut of our companion show Origin Story in London this week, this Wednesday, the second of November, to be exact. Ian Dunst and Dorian Linsky will be launching Series Two at Twenty One Soho, which is a fantastic and very cosy little venue near Tottenham Court Road. The last few tickets are available now. There's a link in the show notes, or you can visit 21-soho.com. And for some reason, the show is under comedy. But considering that they're going to be workshopping a new episode about fascism, you know, it's going to be a laugh a minute, I think. Have a look in the show notes to get your tickets, and we'll see you there. It's been a week since Rishi Sunak, five foot five, became Conservative leader and Britain's third Prime Minister in as many months. So Keir Starmer, five foot eight and a half, now faces his third opponent across the dispatch box. Can he rely on Tory mistakes and economic mismanagement to carry Labour to number 10? How should Labour tackle this new administration? Let's start with the major clangor, though. Suella Braverman, five foot six, in the Commons right now making her statement. She has yet to resign from what we can see. And her personal emails, but worse than that, the uh, Migration Centre in Manston. Hannah Bravman's told the Home Affairs Committee that the immigration policy that she emailed from her personal account to the wife of, of the MP, Sir John Hayes, didn't contain secret or top secret information. Is that going to wash, do you think? No, it won't wash. And the reason is because this stuff actually does matter. Procedure matters because it's about national security and 90% of the stuff that falls under that isn't really you know, particularly consequential, but that doesn't mean the procedure isn't there for nothing. Is there for nothing? So, of course, uh, it's just it's just her trying to wiggle her way out. But as you said, 
the much more significant thing is what's going on with the migration centres. And actually, additionally, the argument, the row about how she's managed um, mig- migrant uh, numbers in hotels, it's worth stating the migrants that are in hotels are largely successful asylum seekers. They're people that we have welcomed or should be welcoming with open arms. They have every right to be here. The only reason they're stuck in hotels is because we've completely failed to build enough social housing to make sure that our population is well housed, including people that we're supporting, like asylum seekers. The whole issue is a complete dog whistle. And in my view, that's why she's jumped on it. And, um, you know, she's made a complete hash of it as a result. But it's not just that, is it? It's that she clearly had, in her very short first stint as Home Secretary, she clearly had an imperative to sign the orders that would allow for hotel accommodation. Yeah. And when even Priti Patel's people are right, that exactly. she did it, she was conscientious enough and actually cared enough to do it. I mean, I think, I think the, re- the reason that she didn't do it, I, I'm, I'm making an educated guess here, is that, you know, she knows the controversy that placing X number of uh, migrants in ho- in hotels creates in, in the right-wing press, that she probably sat back on it as a result. And look at the, look at the chaos that's caused. It is inhumane and morally deficient to have not followed the instruction uh, in her job. So seeing her having to defend this potentially to the point of resignation, we're not sure yet, is, uh, it's gratifying in the sense that it is actually just justice, essentially, that people are calling her out on this. Even, as you point out, people like Preeti Patel. Mm. That's a weird one. Well, given that this was kind of quite clearly an attempt to keep uh, a particular block of the parliamentary Tory party and also the membership on side, uh, it could go off as the shortest-lived olive branch or whatever. <laughs> or it, it seems to make clear... Well, the biggest, this... like, stupid mistake yeah. because it's done the opposite. It's now created a, another chaos narrative, which yeah. presumably he's trying to avoid. I, I just love the idea that this is going to become, you know, one of the many conventions in British politics. So, you know, someone becomes prime minister, they appoint Suella Braverman as Home Secretary, <laughs> she stays for a week, max under a month, busy. then she goes and then you replace her with the actual Home Secretary. It's just, mm-hmm. well, you know, in 30 years, but I, how did that start? Oh, yeah, I remember. Like, was it like... <laughs> Louisa Truss? Like, is that yeah, <laughs> it's, it could be what, like driving sheep over Westminster Bridge just ceremonially and oh, the installation of the Braverman followed by the removal of the Braverman <laughs> and then Black Rod will find somebody else. Yeah. And like in the year 2600, time for the annual voting down of Theresa May's Brexit deal. <laughs> Marie, Braverman's admitted that she sent official documents from her government email account to her personal email address. Six times. Now, once she resigned first time, in the dim and distant past, the first resignation, it was just, well, I've done it once. She's now fast up to doing it six times. This shows a very fast and loose approach to the, to the security of government data, surely. Uh, it does, absolutely. And, you know, and as uh, several people have pointed out on Twitter since then, she was attorney general for quite a long time before that. It feels that if it's something she did six times in however many days uh, as Home Secretary, it feels unlikely that that's something she'd never done before. As again, Attorney General, which is not a, you know, a kind of nothing job, it is a cabinet position, a very important one as that. So, um, so yeah, no, it, it does feel quite worrying. So that plus the allegations that she leaked sort of everything that she ever heard. I would personally, I think, not really trust Joella Braverman. Obviously, just one woman's opinion. Well, we're just looking at the telly now and the Chiron at the bottom is saying, Braverman, I have, I will bring about the change that's so urgently needed. You might be right in a way you didn't expect there. <laughs> um, uh, here, uh, we'll, in tandem to this, we have this bizarre story of Liz Truss's phone being hacked by the Russians and Boris Johnson apparently suppressing the story until the leadership campaign was over. What's worse, a porous phone or covering up a porous phone? I suppose it's 
not entirely surprising for Boris Johnson to, well, A, be ecumenical with the truth or uh, goings on at any particular time and also to do so in favour of the person he desperately hoped would succeed him uh, rather than the person who now is prime minister, uh, whether that was simply because he assumed that she'd crash and burn, but not quite so quickly uh, so that if she'd lasted six months, then he might have been able to uh, ride in on a white horse and hope that everyone had forgotten what he was like. There's a slightly odd thing with people being sort of bugged and hacked and everything. Where, where, like, I sort of just assume that that is what happens, but I think that that's just because I don't know enough about tech. Like, mm. I, I like, do they have an entirely different like brand of phone uh, to mind? That's like really... secure phones within a kind of government infrastructure. I think. Yeah. I don't think they're called like GovPhone or anything. Right. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. So if they if they have got sort of like specific devices that they should be using. Perhaps a lot of this is also to do with an inevitable consequence of a dozen years playing politics on easy mode and not necessarily being able to do that uh, in the same way that you were in past years, right? So it's like with every passing year, you're getting away as a party, as a government, you're getting away with more and more and more to the point that you're just like, yeah, I mean, like, I'm Home Secretary, and I've got whatever newspapers on side, and I've got whoever else on side. So I'm just going to ping this as a WhatsApp like I would normally. Yeah, if, you, if you've been able to bring down a government using Snapchat, you probably figure <laughs> that when you're Home Secretary, you can just carry on doing the same thing, and it'll be fine. I mean, obviously, this is a, a, a prime early stage scandal. And we're still looking at it. So she knows she's still on the benches. But where does it all leave Labour and the ground that they've got to fight on? I mean, Hannah, uh, since the uh, Sunak came in, the Labour leaders compressed somewhat, which is not surprising because considering the the farcical nature of the last administration, yeah. we would be surprised if those heady 30% leads would persist. Where are the government fundamentally weak then? As opposed to, you know, not just when they've got a crazy person as the Prime Minister. Well, I think that, that there's there's more uh, than just the leader to, to attack. And I think if Starmer's looking for new lines of attack, he shouldn't worry too much about Rishi Sunak as, as a figurehead, but look at the whole government. You know, you look at Theresa Coffey's mishandling of the NHS, there's loads of potential territory there to uh, for quite easy wins. Um, we talked about Swell, she's sitting there looking neither contrite nor particularly aware of the extent of her failings. That's a, an obvious easy one. Rob, um, Robert Jemrick's also in immigration. He's got a history of, of you know, extreme screw-ups. If I was advising um, Starmer's team, I'd be keeping a very close eye on him. And, you know, fracking, the flip-flopping there, I know he's come in, um, Sunak, and, you know, essentially swept away what Liz Truss was attempting to do there but it just raises that question or it's an easy an easy um argument to make is you know what does this party stand for yes you're a new leader but you're all over the place this is this is the kind of continuity of chaos so it's quite easy to just keep on with that line of finding new figureheads i think the obsession with starmer as like uh this kind of character i don't think we, they're making enough at the moment of the other people in government i mean vet cooper's been fantastic recently why is she not equally kind of visible yeah. uh, in the case, uh, you know, the alternative or, you know, what do you call it, the, uh, the government-in-waiting that Starmer yeah. wanted to describe them as. So he needs to make use of all of the people who can destroy quite easily uh, the, oppos- uh, the the government. Is Labour boxed into having to portray Sunak as a kind of chancellor who was quite poor, you know, he, he oversaw a period of high tax and low growth? Because neither of those things are really traditional Labour attack lines, are they? 
No, it is a, an interesting area. I think, you know, if they, if they go for high tax, low growth, that does, it's a quite um, a difficult argument for them mm. to make for the obvious reasons that their own strategy can be unpicked with the same criticisms. But, you know, if you look at high tax, but failure to do anything with it, that's probably a better angle. You know, lack of in investment on in infrastructure. What about quality of life? Everyone's feeling pinch, yeah. feeling pretty awful at the moment. I think another part of the issue uh, with going after just Sunak's record as chancellor is that a lot of the like finer detail of the pandemic is stuff that I don't think people really like politically or indeed psychologically want to relitigate. Mm. And so if you want to bang on about uh, what a disaster eat out to help out was in terms of the sort of increases in cases in the areas where it was most taken up and everything. You can do that, but I don't think that people are going to be particularly receptive to thinking about what was just an, an incredibly awful time. Like I, I remember recently uh, re-watching the first video where uh, uh, the, the first press conference where Rishi Sunak uh, introduced the furlough scheme. And it's just I've never seen someone look as physically sort of tired uh, and destroyed just by like the circumstance of what was happening around them uh, as he did. And it was like a horrible sort of going back in time uh, thing. I think there's also the possibility that if you go into it through largely the COVID uh, record, uh, he would then argue that, yeah, and as a consequence, there are lots of financial limitations in place because we did borrow like half a trillion quid and we didn't do nothing with it. I mean, and one thing as well, and I, I am absolutely shamelessly nicking this uh, from Stephen Bush's column today, um, but making the point, so I think what's really interesting about Sunak and about the, I think, wider argument as well that politics at the moment is quite vibes-based. And, you know, and we saw that over the summer that played against Sunak, uh, despite the fact that, you know, he's a Brexiteer. Economically, he is, you know, he's not less trustmental, but he is very right-wing. Mm. Um, but obviously, he was kind of perceived to be centristy, Remainery, kind of cuddly, cuddlier Tory. But that, that, that is not where he is at all. So I, I, I wonder for Labour if there's not an argument in saying, actually, you know what? Just wait it out for a bit, like give him enough rope and actually see what he does for a bit before yeah. you find that figure out angles. I worry that there's a risk otherwise of kind of throwing everything they have at the wall to see what sticks when that doesn't really work, I think. So give him a few months and actually he may well himself, just by doing the stuff he actually believes in and wants to do, you know, make himself unpopular with the electorate and also give Labour uh, stuff to attack him on. Yeah, because politics has basically become sports and therefore as Sunak was against Johnson, that means he must be a wet centrist Remainer. But it's also, but he I think, the, the fact that the opposite he's got, of that. Yeah. So he basically has Tony Blair's voice, which is always sort of like quite eerie. And, you know, and he dresses quite well. He's got the nice suits and he's mm. got, you know, he wears the hoodies and he used to live in the US, etc. So it, it is also, you know, that there are things there which I think make that as opposed, you know, make that be beyond the kind of he was the anti-Boris Johnson. But, but yeah, again, that's not, you know, politically, that's not who he is. Well, Starmer was, is the antithesis of Johnson. Competent, clean, not stupid, clean in every sense, uh, not destructive, obeys the rules. Does he have the same edge over somebody who's roughly kind of presenting the Tory Starmer, as it were? Um, I don't think so. But I think that, I, basically, I'm going to agree with Hannah, I think, and slightly repeat what she said in that, you know, the, the, the fundamentals about the Conservative Party being a mess have not really changed with mm. Sunak kind of at the helm of the party. And you can quite easily, I think, as Starmer, anyone in the Labour Party can make the argument of saying, OK, fine, even if this guy is decent, as we've seen, you could not trust Tory MPs not to get rid of leaders just all the time. They yeah. will not stop. They get restless. They, you know, they want blood every three months, like a weird blood sacrifice. Mm. Um, so actually, you know, I would even actually if you... watch that and vote for him. <laughs> Carry on, yes. Um, you know, so even if you like him, 
Who's to say they're not going to change to another guy that you hate the second after the next election and then not give you an election after that? So, so I do think you can play on the kind of untrustworthy bunch who just do what they want. I hear. What did you make of the slightly weird Daily Show episode last week where Trevor Noah sort of presented this report kind of claiming that Britain was kind of up in arms about a brown, M, a brown prime minister and the country couldn't handle it? And we're all like... That is the one thing everybody seems to agree on. It's, you know, he's absolutely, his background is an ethnicity absolutely fine. It's all the other stuff we've got a problem with. So I found within this country it to be absolutely remarkable how little fanfare there was around something that I did not think would happen within my lifetime. Mm. Did you really uh, not think it would happen in your lifetime? No. No, no, no. Well, even the Conservative Party is like stuffed with like people of a non white. No, I mean, like, maybe for the last few years, I've thought that if there were going to be a non-white prime minister uh, in the 21st century in Britain, it would most likely be uh, Indian origin Hindu in the Conservative Party, Mm. particularly uh, given just like the the immigration story of those particular communities, both directly from uh, India and the nature of post-independent socialism in India and the sort of entrepreneurial networks that emerged in East Africa that then uh, came here, uh, who largely in decades gone by were turned off the Conservative Party by the explicit racism mm. uh, of the Conservative Party. But I often think of like my late grandfather, for example, who was an extraordinarily socially sort of small in every sense would be socially fiscally everything sort of small c conservative person who would never in his lifetime have countenance voting for the conservative party because quote as he said to my mum they don't care about people like us and david cameron's sort of in many ways successful and intentional attempts to detoxify the party in large parts around the hindu community i think um did like yeah. now we see we see the impact yeah. you also see it borne out in the vote share amongst uh, various demographics i thought that in terms of what uh, trevor Noah was calling on the daily show the reason that i found that weird is that i know that particularly the nature of the digital world has meant that we essentially live in a digital extension of america uh, and i feel it both annoying when British people seem to assume that we live in America with all of the cultural mores and standards and experiences that goes along with that and vice versa. But I was particularly surprised by coming from Trevor Noah, who is not himself, is himself not from yeah. America, is from South Africa, like a country with an extremely different uh, history of race relations and stuff that he, you know, knows very much uh, firsthand. So I did find that sort of strange. I found Ronnie Cheng's bit about like, Ronnie being like, oh, well, he's not Asian because in the United States, yeah. Asian means a bit different. It's like, yeah, we're we're a different country. Mate. Like, it's, <laughs> that's, that's why. Yeah. That's why. Yeah, it does sound weird to you in much the same way that like I, I wouldn't go into a shop in the United States and be absolutely baffled that things weren't like denominated in pounds and pence. Yeah. And I can't like, get a curly whirly. This is a disgrace. It's because it's a different country, mate. That's a, it's a different country with a different set of experiences. Do you think the refresh is going to work then? The absolute flip from Johnson and Truss to this super square guy. I don't think so, because I think that there has been and you've seen in the Labour Party really going for this is 12 years of Tory government. This is 12 years. And maybe the, the sort of refresh renewal thing was something that was successful when Boris Johnson became prime minister, because he could say like, 
I am the one who voted for Brexit. Brexit is the cleaving line in mm. British politics. And now we have a Brexiteer uh, in charge. And you can just about say, like, yeah, I suppose that that is a, a refresh in some sense. And to think that the Johnson Conservative Party was the same as the Cameron Conservative Party in uh, 2010 doesn't really work. Yeah. But you say, right, we've had however many years of just Tory government in general, several years of just... Brexit, a high Brexiteer government in general, is it, is it working? Has it worked? Certainly doesn't fucking seem to have. Uh, and that's the thing that could be like, well, it's time for a change and for people who aren't so complacent that they are constantly letting their phones get hacked by uh, yeah. the Russians. And the, th- the thing that makes people vote for a change is just the sense that it's time for a change. Mm. The, the change, that you know, change itself is the thing that people back. Hannah, just, uh, just to wrap this up, I mean, Sunak's got a net worth of £730 million, famously richer than the monarch. Is that an attack line that's ever going to work for Labour, though? Because we tend to sort of, it's very easily caricatured as, you know, why are you against money? But it's also, you know, it sort of feels a bit like slightly below the belt for the British voter. Yeah, These I th- poor millionaires. I, I mean, I don't actually think people respond very well to that kind of thing unless there's some additional reason. So, I mean, he happened to marry someone who is incredibly wealthy. Okay, you could argue that it's a tactical move, but it's more likely that it just met someone who happens to be incredibly wealthy. It's only useful if he pulls one of his old ruses of doing something like filling up an aide's car, pretending it's his own. If he looks mm-hmm. like he's not understanding the cost of living crisis because of this great wealth that protects him from reality, that's a useful attack. But just generally going at him because of his family circumstances, I think that doesn't work on any spectrum. It doesn't work if you're attacking someone because they're I know, didn't you know? Didn't go to school beyond age sixteen or whatever, and it equally doesn't work if you happen to be loaded. I just really, really want Rishi Sunak to start self-identifying as a sugar baby. <laughs> 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 Now, great times on Twitter. Elon Musk had been the platform's sole owner for just 48 hours when he tweeted an idiotic conspiracy theory claiming that Nancy Pelosi's husband had actually been assaulted by a male sex worker and not by a radicalised right-wing conspiracy theorist, which is what had happened. This capped a weekend where the world's richest Archbishop of Banterbury marked his $44 billion purchase of Twitter by turning up at the office with a bathroom sink and tweeting, let that sink in, by sacking loads of executives and by floating the idea of a new Twitter where hate speech rules are relaxed but you could simply mute the Nazis like we did so successfully in the 1930s. So what kind of Twitter can we expect? And should we, on this podcast, continue using it? Marie, have we just put the Joker in charge of Twitter? Uh, yes, we have. And it, I mean, I, I've had a number of feelings about this because at first, you know, when the news kind of came in that he was potentially going to take over Twitter, I hated it. Then when it came out that he no longer wanted to buy Twitter but was being forced to buy it, mm. I really enjoyed that. Like that was really, really, that put, you know, sung in my heart. Um, and now he actually owns it. I'm bummed out again. So I bought it. Now I'll break it. Well, I mean, you know, and, and there's, yeah. Um, and, and I wrote a column about this today. And it, it, what, what is worrying, I feel like it nearly feels ironically like the days of Donald Trump being president. And, the, the, you know, the problem was not just the tweets. It was just the idea that he could tweet anything at any point and things mm. could get real bad really quickly out of nowhere. And I feel like this is that, except on, you know, arguably in terms of the platform on a grander scale of like he could just decide to do something that would make Twitter unusable from one day to the next. Well, I mean, he claims that he wants Twitter to be this common digital town square and not a hellscape. 
uh, and yet I am just I'm just seeing Father Ted with a placard that says "Not a Hellscape" <laughs> of him. I'm not sure what his concept of "Not a Hellscape" is because it seems pretty hellscapey. You know, cut back on, on the pathetic content moderation that there is already on Twitter. I mean, every sure everybody in this room has reported nauseating, yeah. racist, and anti-Semitic and so forth tweets, and the message has come back saying doesn't contravene our society standards, which may actually be sort of technically correct, but this doesn't get, leave you with a feeling of any confidence in the whole thing. It does not, but also, so I think there's two things here. The first one is that, you know, uh, he fundamentally misunderstands, I think, everything if he wants it to be a town square. A town square is not owned by one person. Like that, mm-hmm. That's not how, you know, like uh, how it works. But then I think the second thing as well, and it's uh, quite interesting, because I think it was some people who used to work for Reddit who said, oh, well, you know, the problem we had is that, you know, clearly, I mean, Reddit had... That it decided to do full free speech, full everything, full every everyone can say whatever they want, etc. And then we realised obviously that drove away all the minorities and women from Reddit. And then we had to spend quite a long time working very hard to make them come back. And I wonder if it's not going to be the case of effectively something similar happening on Twitter, which Elon would probably not care about massively in and of itself. But you know, brands are on Twitter and places that you know want to advertise on Twitter would probably not want to be associated with it if it becomes you know, some sort of cesspit, which is, again, a quote-unquote, a haven of free speech where anyone even vaguely sensible has just left. Yeah. Uh, here, the, the Paul Pelosi episode was really strange because Musk retweeted at Hillary Clinton, tweeted at Hillary Clinton, this story from a site called the Santa Monica Observer, which has no credibility at all, known for running fake news. That story now spreads, is being widely believed. The fact that Musk deleted it makes no difference whatsoever. This is surely the opposite of this town square of the mind that he's talking about. Yeah, but I mean, I I think that it's very difficult to know what he actually wants uh, from this thing. But I think that it was just a cool idea in his head. And then he put down an offer and circumstance dictated, like despite him trying to get out of it. Are you as saying this is possible. drunk eBay bidding? At it's four it's o'clock sort in the of that, you know, like it's like if, you know, like, for example, in my own relationship, if like shortly after I proposed, I repeatedly tried everything I could in order to get out of it <laughs> until I was basically forced by the threat of a Delaware Chancery Court, then you probably would question my initial interest in yeah. the thing to begin with. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's sort of like that. He he is the dog that caught the car or however you want to face yeah. it, you know, like he, he, he theoretically wanted this thing because I've got, Oh, I've got such great ideas how to make it happen. Realized it would be a lot more difficult, if not impossible in order to achieve that, tried desperately to get out of it has essentially been forced into the situation and it's going to be awful for everyone. I would heartily recommend uh, people read uh, a piece on the verge written by Nilay Patel uh, called welcome to hell, Elon, uh, which just, um, outlines all of the difficulties that he's going to face, particularly in light of his other companies and how his other companies seek to operate in like particularly places like China and Germany. It's like very, very interesting, like all of the different intersections of how like it's just going to fuck everything up for him. Uh, well, the kind of Panglossian, don't worry, guys, it's going to be fine argument revolves around the huge leverage he's had to take out to actually buy the thing. 14 billion of the 44 billion he spent on it is borrowed against Twitter itself in the style of Manchester United, you know, being taken over. So he's got to pay that back. He needs more members. He needs more advertisers. He's dependent on top on people like Unilever and Coca-Cola who haven't actually said anything yet about content moderation. The argument is that 
if Twitter becomes foul or fouler than it already is, the exodus of members would tank this huge purchase. So he doesn't actually have any alternative but to maintain things largely as they are. He's talking about this content moderation council, which sounds like you know, a kind of, I don't know how a content moderation council is going to deal with 238 million users. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it just case that, like, he, he, you know, there's a whole lot of big talk about how it's going to be wild and free, but the bottom line is going to mean it's probably going to have to stay pretty much the well, same. Quite possibly. And uh, I think in part because it's probably coming at things from, uh, you know, another South African who's adopted homeland is America and coming at things from a sort of First Amendment absolutist perspective mm. uh, or whatever. And I know that I said sort of de facto the digital square has become American yeah. due to the level, sorry, uh, due to the level of cultural dominance that they have. But of course, de jure, it's not uh, right. And you're going to have to deal with lots of different laws in lots of different jurisdictions. Uh, and as I referenced earlier, I was thinking particularly in terms of uh, specific speech laws in Germany that are in place for reasons mm. you could probably imagine. Uh, and what you're going to do in terms of China if you want to continue having a huge supply chain relationship with them, with your autom automotive manufacturer. Um I think that yeah, he's he's really boxed himself into a corner in all sorts of different places, which I don't think that he ever thought that he actually would be in. You didn't think it through, did you, Elon? Hannah, is Twitter now so embedded in democratic life that we shouldn't and can't really accept one guy controlling it? I mean, I, I think it's really, you made a really important point about this idea that it's one guy and maybe even one country. You know, the US kind of defining what what Twitter is, um, but actually, you need to think about the. Uh, effects that it's having, the right-wing radicalization and the conspiracy theories that have just become such an integral part of this free speech version of Twitter that Musk seems to want, um, they have contaminated our politics and it's it's wrong to think of it as this kind of isolated US thing. Um, but I think that we are sort of slightly, our politics is slightly more detached uh, from it in that I think there's still an opportunity for us to extricate ourselves. Um, certainly as, you know, working as a journalist, mm. I've been sort of thinking about this this week about how much do I rely on Twitter for my work and how much do I want to continue to rely on it. Actually, I think it's really easy to think that we're, we need it in a way that we don't. Yeah. Um, and I think actually a lot of our politics goes on beyond Twitter. And we've said here before, sitting around this table, that there's an obsession with how things play out on social media when the majority of voters are such light-touch users that they yeah. maybe send one tweet every month or something. So my slight counterpoint to that, so I completely agree and I find a lot of the stories about Twitter stuff really annoying, but is, isn't, isn't the issue that the quote-unquote elites or kind of like opinion-forming elites are actually on Twitter and spend all their day on Twitter? So if something happens there, you know, it is quite likely that, I don't know, MPs will tweet about it or celebrities will tweet about it, newspapers will end up writing about it, and then from there people end up reading about it. it isn't that partly the problem yeah, that, even if you're not on twitter you're actually probably quite heavily influenced by what by happens on twitter i do agree with you and i think that's almost a challenge to people like you and me to kind of get off it a bit more because i think we're all obsessed with oh i will never there. log off but... <laughs> yeah. um yeah i've been sort of thinking about that how much do i need this and and can i be a kind of different version of the journalist i am well i mean at the basic level the kind of such and such took to Twitter story, the yeah. kind of page filling crap, which is just like, here's a bunch of reactions from people who may or may not be connected to the story at all, but they are apparently the voice of everyone. Is kind of a plague, isn't it? It's yeah, like, but it's because it's easy as well. Yeah. You know, it fills um, the urgently needed 
space in all content that, you know, the amount of content that, you know, most mainstream publications and all of the new digital upstarts are expected to produce on a daily basis. It fills space. It it performs service in, in that sense. Maybe we should all try and do less but better work. <laughs> That's my call to other journalists, Lizzie. I mean, I agree. Would you also agree that we deserve to be paid more so we, we can don't. write less? Yeah, Wouldn't yeah. that be wonderful? We, we Absolutely agree. Yeah. I'm glad we sorted this. Let's start this campaign today. We should all be paid a lot more, but not by me. <laughs> <laughs> One of the weird aspects of this whole thing is that, you know, what, if you buy the, the free speech libertarian aspect of it, well, if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. And there isn't a somewhere else to go. We can't all like go to Mastodon or whatever and, oh, let's go to Parley. That'll be great, won't it? Oh, my Kanye West. Isn't the point of large social networks like these that they are essentially utilities and the point of a utility is it's universal you don't sit there choosing which tap to get your water out of there isn't a competing road system so if they're utilities they've got to be regulated and they've got to in some way serve the interests of the people who are using them so first of all i feel like generally my uh, agent will kill me if i do not say if you're interested in stuff about like stuff like this you may enjoy escape by marie lecomte <laughs> a book on quite exactly this uh, but no so i completely agree but I, I, so i think the challenge that actually so this is not just a problem you know because all oh, the internet and grand scheme of things is still new etc like this is a problem because it's a phenomenon that is still very new even in the context of the internet because if you look at even sort of 10, 15 years ago, platforms were changing all the time. You know, we moved from Bebo to MySpace to MSN to et cetera, et cetera, Tumblr, whatever else you want. Like, you know, like, everything felt very transient because people kept moving from one platform to the other. Um, and it is only, A, quite recent that, again, you know, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp and Twitter effectively, you know, became those kind of monoliths in the places mm. where people stayed and people stopped attempting to kind of find new platforms and move along. The point is that there isn't the next thing is not on the horizon in the way that, like, you could see in the dying days of MySpace. Clearly, this is going to die. Here's Facebook. It's just someone Matt. hasn't logged onto the Matt Hancock app recently. Oh, <laughs> MattNet. So it's like, isn't this just a? I don't know. I, I wonder if it's a kind of a generational kind of attitude. Like we're in this zone where, as Marie says, these kind of four platforms have become hyper dominant. They, uh, you know, affect every part of public life. Every generation comes and forms their their whatever they need. When I, you know, exactly as Marie said, when I was younger, I needed MySpace for something. I needed Live Journal for something else, and then I needed Twitter because I was a professional journalist, and that's kind of what, mm. what I was on. And I feel like there will be a life cycle to this. It's it's not a service in the same way that electricity is. It's a life cycle, and we're right in the middle of it. And it really matters now, but it might in ten years. It it probably won't matter a jot. So my again, sorry, but I know it's like counterpoint to this. I was really talking about it with someone else last week in a different context. Is my worry is that actually increasingly services that used to be offered are not really being replaced. So my example was uh, Facebook events. So obviously, like everyone has left Facebook, kind of mm. gradually. I don't really miss it, but the one thing Facebook did incredibly well was events. So if you organised a birthday party, uh, whatever mm. you wanted to organise, you had all your friends in the same place. You could send that, but also on the kind of user side of things as well, you could check your events tab to what you'd been invited to, what was going on, who, who was going to what on what date. Um, you know, and then everyone kind of slowly start, stopped using Facebook. So that stopped. And no one has recreated that, So, which I find incredibly striking because I think there would be such an obvious market for something like Facebook events. Um, and, and, you know, and no, one, no one's done that. So my worry actually is that, you know, these spaces, these online spaces are decaying but no one is kind of filling the gap, which feels counterintuitive because, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, etc. But 
still. I didn't even know that happened. I just thought I had no friends and nobody wanted to see see me. But that is actually interesting because that is a feature of modern technologically driven society, which is suddenly you find your phone hasn't got a headphone jack. Suddenly you find that thing you depend upon doesn't work anymore. Suddenly you find that thing that was integral to your life has just been removed in a planning meeting somewhere. And customer demand doesn't really operate anymore in the same way. I just want to wrap this up by asking about how comfortable we are still using Twitter because we on the podcast kind of have to and we make the best of it and we try and be funny and entertaining and useful and bring you stuff that you haven't seen. But, you know, we're kind of stuck with it. Well, I'm not loving it, but I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still there. But, but in the same way, isn't it, you know, that, that, that old chestnut, the uh, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. I shop from places that are probably not great, you know, mm. and I probably should not shop from. Um, I personally get to be on my high horse on this because I do not shop on Amazon. But, you know, lots of people shop on Amazon Mm. and ASOS and Shine and whatever else. That's probably worse in terms of pure human cost than being on Twitter. Probably. Hannah, I hear you still continuing. Yeah, I mean, I'll still be there because it is is at the moment pretty essential to me sustaining my Mm. income. Um, And, I, you know, I don't love that. And am I thinking about ways of of circumventing it? Perhaps being a little bit less obsessed? Yes. Yeah. I, th- I think that there's just the idea that if, for example, like let's say Donald Trump comes back to it or everything, and once again, this just becomes the app that revolves around main character of the world, mm-hmm. Donald Trump, and everything, it's just going to be less pleasant uh, to interact with. And then it won't be any sort of like dramatic ethical stance or anything like that. It's just that, oh, every time I click this, it makes me sad and anxious. So probably I'll just do that a bit less. <laughs> well, come on. Habbo Hotel is that way. That's where we're all going. <laughs> Finally, Penny for the Guyver Hostad. When I was a boy, Halloween was nothing more than an unremarkable night of bobbing for wormy apples in a bowl of water which we later had to bathe in. The real action was November the 5th, a.k.a. Bomb Fire Night, with all of its pyrotechnic thrills, danger of injury and simmering undertone <laughs> of sectarian hatred. Wonderful times. <laughs> now, it's all about Halloween, with entire neighbourhoods going full Adam's family, people turning up at your house as, quote, sexy coronavirus, and poor old Bonfire Night seemingly on the fade. Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Cardiff, Glasgow, Norwich, Dundee and Nottingham are among the cities who have cancelled their fireworks display this year because of the cost of living. Hannah, why is Halloween thriving and bonfire night on life support? I don't know. I sound like my mother, but I find it really depressing. Um, it's, you think it's the youngsters really... are to blame? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they are. Certainly the five-year-old one. It's really odd. Uh, maybe it's easier to commercialise Halloween. There's more stuff you can buy related to Halloween. There's only really fireworks for Guy Fawkes Night. I don't know why this has happened other than perhaps we got so obsessed with the major fireworks, the kind of big city-wide fireworks event that everyone's supposed to go to, that it lost its sort of local appeal when, oh. uh, when I was growing up not that long ago. In the 80s and 90s, what I remember is that the, the, the kind of fireworks might have been your local park. So it would only have about 30 fireworks and a small bonfire, but everybody you knew would be there and it'd be really fun. There'd be hot dogs, you know, Coke, whatever. Um, the drink, by the way. Maybe the reason that it's become people are much more interested in Halloween is because it has that function. It's your street. All the kids are out on your street and you can decorate your house and your local mates will be over and sharing sweets and, you know, pop and whatever else. So it's it's switched in that sense. And I think that's the reason. Maybe it's the over-commercialism by councils and other public bodies to generate these massive, you know... 
city events. It's events. kind of ruined it. Maybe it's that. Oh, so because the usual complaint is, boo, this is terrible. This is American culture coming and invading British culture, which as we all know is boring and small scale, and we shouldn't have it because it's foreign. But actually, we should have it because it's a communitarian. And Possibly, it's about... yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff going on where I live. I saw the most insane decoration this morning. Uh, it was about 40 pumpkins on the doorstep, plus a giant spider hanging out the window. I was quite impressed. Marie's shaking her head in horror here. I love the... <laughs> Halloween so much. So yeah. it is my favourite holiday of the year. Okay. Um, yes. Oh, I don't understand. It's God's Christmas. No. Yes, Sorry. it is. It's from... Like, I, I, I love, no, no, so no need do I love... So I, this is my slight counterpoint. I'm, I'm playing the immigrant card here a bit, but this whole, like, oh, it's actually quite a recent change and, you know, like Americans in the past decade or whatever. Mm. Growing up in France, I was incredibly jealous of Britain for having Halloween because we didn't really have Halloween in France. What, well, you, you were jealous of duck apple and that's it. No, no, but I feel like people were dressing up in stuff in Britain. That's what we look like, Marie. We look like... Been dead that for a skin, fortnight. Really? Yes. The teeth? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no, no, I like, genuinely, I still remember my first Halloween in Britain like it was yesterday and the absolute joy I felt walking around and seeing everyone dressed up. Like, it is still, like, I, I adore, so I dress up every single year. I usually try to have several events so I can do several I feel like costumes. we need to hear at least one of your plans for tonight now. Sorry? Oh, no, well, no, so I did it over the weekend now because I'm old oh. and it's a Monday night. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, you know, like, dressing up is really fun um, and, and I think that actually... Everyone who doesn't enjoy dressing up is just lying to themselves or is just fundamentally boring. This is just the objective <laughs> truth. Guilty um, of all counts, and, yes. uh, No, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, again, what helps? Obviously, I was kind of joking about calling it goth Christmas, but also it does kind of help that every single year I do manage to do a costume without having to buy anything because I, I do have quite a lot of gothy clothing uh, in my closet. I hear should we be glad that Bonfire Night is sort of fading away? You know, the terrible carbon footprint, all the pets being frightened. People like Marie nearly blown her finger off with the firework we've learned earlier. This is true, right? It is. It is. It was really fun. I have no regrets. There you we, go. Sh- we should mix them together, dress up, get very drunk, and then do fireworks. Goth Fire Night. So uh, here, should we be glad that this thing is passing into history? Because it's got a bit of an unsavoury background, doesn't it? Well, I think that there's an interesting thing from uh, what... You were speaking about earlier, Hannah, of the the way that um, sort of the, these community events at this time of year. So it's it's a very similar time of year to growing up. Uh, this would be around when Diwali was, yeah. right? Uh, and so certainly when I was growing up, that's what my family would have a Diwali party every year, and invite like you know we'd all bring our school friends and like people from the community and everything. So I grew up in a part of London which was very very heavily uh, British Indian. At that time, and have fireworks and all of the uh, all of that sort of thing, and it was it was a lovely, lovely thing. So I guess I'm I'm being brought around. Maybe I've I've become more pro Halloween than I was yes. going into this yeah. uh, yes. conversation because um, certainly just any, anything that gets sort of people together for a thing where you have a bit of light and have a bit of... Uh, and coincidentally generates what The Guardian estimates is 300 million quids worth of business, which is going to employ somebody somewhere, rather than your local council just burning £150,000 worth of council tax before your eyes. I mean, maybe... I th- just, like, it is such a celebration, I think, of the beauty of human imagination, like, especially from the girls and the gays, like... The things people dress up of, like as sexy versions of, is awe-inspiring. Like yeah. so many weird, sexy versions of things, it brings a tear to the eye. Yeah, because it is as well as uh, goth Christmas, it's also widely referred to as gay Christmas, which uh, you know yes. brings a lot Why to the party. Why would you not love that gay goth Christmas? Gay goth Christmas. It is true that the very worst hangover of my entire life was after a Halloween party. 
So, you know, maybe you run me around. But just getting back to poor old Bonfinite, I mean, what's it come to when you can't burn your religious enemies in effigy, as Britain has been doing for the past, (laughs) you know, 400 years? I don't know if anybody's ever been to Lewis for Bonfinite. Mm. That is... Talk about anti-woke crusading. Go to Lewis and you'll see political correctness being burnt to a crisp before your very eyes. They're burning the Pope. They're burning all kinds of people. And they did burn Trump one year. They what, sorry? They burnt Trump one year. They burnt Trump one year, yes. Yeah, so it's a bit equal opportunity. They burnt Posh Spice one year as well. If we lose Bonfire Night entirely, then I do worry that we're going to lose the phrase... Guy Fawkes was the only man to enter Parliament I'm with honest intentions. Lose that phrase. No, no, no. I'm not happy to lose it because it's one of those phrases that when someone says it, you know you can safely discount everything else that they have to say. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, about, uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we if we lose that, then I'm going to have to find a new phrase. <laughs> well, I would have thought that there'd be some way to segue Bonfinite into you know connect it with all these Viva Vendetta masks that seem so popular. You would have thought that 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 person would have some kind of connection with Bonfinite. You know, because it's all about blowing up the House of Parliament, that there would be somebody somewhere out there who could rebrand Bonfire Night for the QAnon generation. Somebody's <laughs> going to want to do it. And you are that man, Andrew. Oh, yes. It's the end of the podcast. But before we go, it is time for our panellists to tell us their escape routes. What are the films, books, TV shows, miscellaneous that have been taking their minds off politics, if even for only a short period of time? Marie. So I have been reading, which actually is quite Halloween friendly, uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. All right. Uh, which is basically one of those. Well, I've never read any of Neil Gaiman's books, but, you know, everyone I've ever met has always told me that I would love them. And shock, horror, surprise, I'm really loving it. Um, so, yeah, no, it t- turns out Neil Gaiman... Good writer, you good really novelist. Are, you really are a goth, aren't you? So, yeah. What's the plot and setting? What's happening? I guess basically like, the, the, the vaguely spoiler-free version is just this man who's normal, has a normal job, normal life, etc., and then discovers the London Below, which is basically populated with people who fell through the cracks, and it's kind of all those people who live in London without living in London in this entirely different world. Um, and she was, yeah, he has to help this little girl who's also a kind of countess of the London Below, and it's just really fun. It's just really, really fun. Ah, mm. oh, here. How about you? Uh, I have recently finished watching The Bear on Disney Plus, which is an eight-part sort of drama, maybe a little bit of comedy drama um, about a young chef who takes over uh, his uh, late brother's restaurant, sort of selling beef sandwiches in Chicago, and it's really, really good. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. I will say it's it's. It's quite stressful. It's quite like hectic in a way of like people talking over each other all the time. So certainly if, if you're if you're looking for like quiet, quiet thing just <laughs> before bed, probably not uh, the best one. But, you know, I, I mean, a, a lot of it centers around just like watching people cook beef. And uh, as, like it was it was it was good enough that even from a Hindu perspective, I was like, yeah, cool. That's, that's, what, that's what I guess that's what I'm watching now. That's a, that's a quality, uh, quality recommendation. Hannah, how about you? So I'm a bit late to this. Uh, I think it came out in 2021, but I've just seen um, the Joanna Hogg film, The Souvenir Part 2, mm. which is, I absolutely love everything she does. She um, she basically skewers the kind of upper classes um, and her direction is just brilliant. So if you haven't seen any of her films, definitely catch some um, Archipelago or Exhibition at her early ones. But um, yeah, this, this two-part uh, film series she did called The Souvenir is about the aftermath of a potentially slightly exploitative abusive relationship between a young um, 
film uh, student and an older man um, who turns out, I won't uh, give loads of spoilers, but turns out to have an addiction. Uh, and the second part of that is particularly interesting and experimental. And anyway, I just want to beat the drum for Joanna Hogg. If you don't know her, definitely check it out. Mm-hmm. Well, mine is, um, I'm certainly watching it attentively. I don't know if I'm recommending it, but it's the peripheral on Amazon, which is the adaptation of the William Gibson novel, which is a kind of, effectively it's set in two time periods. One is the very near future when everything has gone to crap. The economy has collapsed. The environment has collapsed due to an ill-defined thing called the jackpot, which is pretty much a whole load of bad things all happen at once. So climate change and economic collapse and... Uh, Feels this, very unlikely. Very, very <laughs> unlikely. This thing. is what's taking your mind off what's going on. <laughs> it's a science fiction thing. It's a, yeah, so it's basically everything that can go wrong does go wrong and society has, has collapsed uh, and we, we spend our... We, we follow a family living in the Blue Ridge Mountains of, uh, of, of Appalachia as they try to eke a living playing video games. Simultaneously, in the future... London is almost completely depopulated, controlled only by gangsters and their uh, their attendant robots. And somehow the future is communicating with now, backwards in time. And you might go, oh, well, this is just completely ridiculous, escapist nonsense. To an extent it is. But what it's really about is which direction is our society heading? Which way is our economy taking us? And more importantly, our decisions about our economy. If, effectively, we're looking at a future which contains nothing but oligarchs, the klept, as they are known, nothing but oligarchs, nothing but the rich, London contains nobody but rich people and their sexy robots. It's about the decisions we make and the things we turn a blind eye to. That said, it's got deep, deep flaws, which is that the villain, uh, who's played by a British uh, actor, she has the most appalling kind of, uh, (laughs) hello, me darling, Uh, Mary Poppins, I'm a villain from the future. Really bloody awful. Uh, That really takes you out of the drama so, so badly. And it's a shockingly poor decision. And I'm looking at it and thinking, this is a British, she's a British actor. She has clearly been told that her British accent isn't British enough (laughs) to play with the Americans. So she's got to Dick Van Dyke it up. And it it really, really doesn't work. So that's my major kind of problem with it. But other than that, thought-provoking, interesting, come on, it's William Gibson. So it's, it's going to be good to a large extent. So that's the peripheral. And that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you for listening. Thank you, Hannah Fern. Thank you. Thank you, Marie Lacant. Thank you. And thank you, Ahir Shah. Andrew, thank you. Listeners, remember, if you want to help us uh, fight the good fight for growth in the independent podcast sector, you can always back us on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early, without adverts. You'll get beautiful hand-designed merchandise. And you'll get a shout-out on the show. So here, over our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, are some of those shouts. Hello and thanks from me for your support too. Bruce Nicole, John Cotterill, V Bright, Robert Harrop, Lee, Chris Morris, Stephen Kipp, Ollie and Josh Aiken. Many thanks from me to David Den Hollander, John Walsh, Elizabeth Gibbons, James Smith, J.M. Gallen, Alexandra Price, Daniel Ruff, Simon Bates and Andrew Besford. Best wishes from me to Lisa Stock, Sharon Melsom, Cal van der Merwe, Eric, Neil McMahon, Ali Balmond, Matt, Stephen Barnes and Maria C. Scott. And finally, all the best and thanks from me to Samuel Miles, Dora Abazi, Jamie MacDonald, Richard Williams, Sugar Bush Records, Deanne Mitchell, Kirsten McKenzie, Brant McFarland and David Lloyd. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all on Friday. Oh, God, what now? was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Hannah Fern, Marie LeConte and I here Shah. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. 
and the producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. It's their last week at Podmasters. What a ride it's been. And me, Alex Reese. With assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>